In some ways, to be human is to wrestle with doubt. And we, we do it at a very young age. I mean, what's the first question children ask? What do you, what's the question you hear over and over again? Why? 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 Some of you may be aware, but uh, sometime within the next month or so, we will be first-time grandparents. And I'm pretty excited about that. And I expect, I'm actually hoping to hear on a number of occasions, I can't wait to get to that point where I can hear, why, Grandpa, why? Why, Grandpa, why? Now, I'm sure after a while it's going to drive me crazy, but it sounds pretty exciting to hear that from this side of it. And, and that's what children do. You know, you, you ask why. It's what we do. I mean, it's how we learn. We, we learn because we question because we're thinking to ourselves, I'm not sure that's right, or I'd like to know more about that, or, or I, I can't quite wrap my mind around that. Help me understand it. And, and the learning process is in many ways wrapped up in this whole thing of doubt. And we tend to think of doubt, particularly in the church, as something negative, but it doesn't have to always be negative. I was thinking about that when, as I was reading this story again that we saw dramatized from John chapter 20. John tells us that a week has passed since Easter. That morning when Mary goes to the tomb and finds the stone rolled away and she runs and grabs Peter and John and they come back and they look in and Jesus is gone. The grave clothes are there. They leave scratching their heads, figure, trying to figure out what happened. And that night, as they're meeting together in a locked room, afraid of the Jews, Jesus appears. For some reason, Thomas isn't there. But you can believe they tell him all about it. And he says, yeah, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I'm going to have to see proof. I'm going to need to see scars before I believe this. So a week goes by. Would have loved to have heard the conversations in that week. You know, we saw him. No, you didn't. Yes, we did. No, we didn't. And they, and they get to the end of the week. And a week later, it's nighttime again. And John paints the scene to be exactly the same. They're locked. They're in a locked room. I get the sense they're still afraid of the Jews. And Jesus appears. And this time Thomas is there. And Jesus says... Look, touch. And Thomas believes. History is pretty hard on Thomas. And when, when I was a child, I don't know if people still do this or not, but if somebody, you know, was skeptical, you'd say to them, oh, don't be a doubting Thomas. Wow, that's your legacy, right? And, and we have tended to categorize Thomas as the doubter. But let's be honest. The only reason he, that he doubts is, as opposed to the others because they don't have a chance to doubt. When Jesus appears, there they are. They're, they're right there. They see him. They believe. The exact same thing Thomas does a week later. He sees Jesus, believes. I'm not sure Thomas doubts any more than the rest of them. I think they're all wrestling with what in the world is going on here and what does all of this mean and, and how do we respond to it? And at the, at the very least, when Thomas sees Jesus, he 
probably fall, I have my, in my mind, he falls on his knees and grabs his, wraps his arms around Jesus' legs. And he says, my Lord, my God. It's the first time someone actually calls Jesus God. I don't know all that's wrapped up in what Thomas says, but you get the sense that once he sees Jesus, he's all in. He may have been late getting to the party, but now he's there and he is completely engaged. And whatever Jesus wants, Jesus gets. Whatever Jesus says, he believes. Whatever Jesus does, he's going to do. Whatever, wherever Jesus wants him to go, he's going to go. He is all in. And I think that pleases Jesus. I think anytime any one of us exhibits faith in Jesus, takes a step of trust, Jesus is pleased with that. And sometimes we miss that in the story, I think. But Jesus then says to Thomas, it's great that you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. There's been great discussion through the centuries of what exactly Jesus means. Is he saying, if you have to have evidence, then you're on the wrong track? Is he saying that there are, there are levels of Christians, those who see him and believe, which, quite frankly, anybody could do, or those who don't see him and believe, and wow, those are great? Is he saying apologetics have no place in the, in the journey of people's faith, that you just, you just live your life, you just believe, you don't worry about that other stuff? I don't think so. I don't think Jesus is saying that at all. I don't think he's trying to create classes of Christians. I think one thing he's saying is, it's wonderful that you see, but you realize that in just a few years, no one will be alive who has actually seen me like this. And I want them to believe because I want them to be blessed. Blessed are those who, have, who don't get the opportunity to see me and believe. And there is something wrapped up in that idea that's not just about the generations to come, but it's about living life in such a way that we trust Jesus even when we can't see him at work in the world. I mean, quite frankly, there are, there are a lot of things happening in the world right now that it feels as if Jesus is nowhere around. Evil seems to be running rampant. God's people are under as much persecution as ever. And we cry out, Lord, where are you? What is going on? We need to see you. And the whisper of Jesus is, will you trust me even if you don't see me? Will you trust me even if it looks as if I'm absent? Will you believe that I'm not? Can you believe that the risen Christ is the Lord of all? He has conquered all of this. He has defeated it. And he's in control. Even if it's hard to see sometimes. Can you believe that? If you can, you'll be blessed. Now, you know, the word blessing is 
controversial because sometimes people take the word blessing to mean that we're going to get all kinds of material stuff. And I guarantee you there are preachers all over the world who will tell you that's the truth. If you just give them enough money, they will make sure that God gives you enough stuff. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. You look at history and you find a a lot of God's most dedicated followers don't have much stuff. But when we talk about blessing, I think it's connected to verse 31. Where John, in summarizing the whole letter, the whole gospel basically says, here's why I wrote this. I wrote this and I included the certain stories I did and the dialogue I did because I want you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you will have life. Not just eternal life, though that's a part of it, but life now. You can actually know what it means to truly live now. You can live set free from the bondage of sin You can live set free from all the ways in which we enslave ourselves and each other. You can be new people. You can be who you were created to be. You can know life, fullness of life, joy, peace, love, all the things that deep inside of you in those moments when it's just just us. In those moments where you, you begin to think about those deep recesses of our being those things if you believe you have life like that the yearnings of your soul will be met if you believe I don't think it's just that you are transformed that you're set free that you're made new, create, new creatures, as Paul says, the old is gone, the new has come. It's not just that it happens to us, but I think the blessing of it is that we know it's happened to us. And we begin to understand that it's happened to us and the implications that it's happened to us. We begin to feel and understand and actually experience that we are children of God. That we're not slaves, we're children of God. John Wesley talked about how one of the hinge points of his whole theological structure was the witness of the Spirit. And he was emphatic with people that that we could know that we have been forgiven. We can know that we have been forgiven. We have been changed by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit and made new creatures and transformed. We can know because the Spirit witnesses to us. And he says if we don't have the witness of the Spirit, then then we won't really know what God wants us to know. We will miss so much of living in his life. Because we'll be questioning, we'll be, we'll be uncertain, we'll be insecure. But the witness of the Spirit keeps telling us, you're a child of God. I mentioned a few weeks ago about the the rural Presbyterian church of northeast India. And it is a church made up of Dalit people, the untouchables of the Indian caste system. In that that culture, even though the 
technically the caste system is illegal, it's a part of the culture and it's very difficult to break that. And so if you were born an untouchable, there are many things in the culture you are unable to do. You're not allowed to do. And untouchables live on the fringes at best of, of the world, of their environment, their culture. And this church is, is for them and by them and with them. And, and in fact, when you, one of the laws is that if you are an untouchable and you have a child, you have to name that child something demeaning, derogatory. So the names of the children are ugly, stupid, dumb, unwanted. But in the church, when people come to faith in Jesus, one of the first things that happens is they prayed them up front and they give them new names. Names that mean valuable, loved, Special, important, priceless. And that church understands it's not just about being transformed, but it's about knowing you're transformed. It's about sensing it deep in your spirit that you're not the way you used to be. That Christ has made us new creatures. That we're children of God. And Jesus says, that's the blessing you experience if you trust me. I keep coming back to that that question about trusting him, even even when we don't see him. And part of what's wrapped up in that is, is letting Jesus be who he says he is. Whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, whether we can see him the way we want to or not. We believe that he is the risen Christ and he knows more than we do and he's at work whether we see him or not. And we want to let him be who he says he is and to do things the way he knows his best. But that's a struggle for us because we have a tendency to create Jesus in our own image. Because the, because the Jesus who is who he says he is is uncontrollable, unmanageable, And we like to control and manage. Calvin Miller was for years pastor of a large church in Omaha, Nebraska. And then uh, taught at a couple of seminaries before his death in 2012. I've read a number of things he's written. I love hearing his sermons. And he talks about when he was about 10 years old, 1947... And he had this crisis, this existential crisis of faith that summer. And it was the conjoining of two separate events that created this moment for him. That summer, he went to vacation Bible school, interestingly enough, at the local Wesleyan Methodist Church. And uh, at the Methodist Church, Wesleyan Methodist Church, they used flannel graph. Now, some of you are going, I have no idea what that is. Others of you are saying, I grew up on flannel graph. I did. You know, the, the landscape scene and, and the felt like people cut out with magnets on the back or, you know, or felt on it that the, you put on the scene, Jesus and the disciples and sheep and all those things, you know, that, that was high tech for us. You know, that was better than drawing little stick people that we used to do. That's the best I could do. 
So, he, so in VBS, he made this flannel graph Jesus, and it, you know, it was great, and he sang choruses. That same summer, he said it was one of the most tragic moments in their family. His, the, his grandmother, who lived with them, lost her mind. He said he'd never been around a sort of, he called it, schizophrenic person before. Someone who just, you know, completely was different than they ever had been. And it was traumatic, as you can imagine, for their family. And one of the things that his grandmother did as a part of that uh, tragic process is that she would steal things from around the house and put them in a trunk that she had in her bedroom and lock it up and say, mine, mine, mine. And he said he came home one day and discovered that his grandmother had stolen his flannel graph Jesus and put that flannel graph Jesus in the trunk and locked it. And was going around the house saying, mine, mine, mine. He says, a 10-year-old, I'm thinking, who would want to steal a flannel graph Jesus and lock him in a trunk? So then I went to seminary and I discovered that there were a whole lot of people who were living their lives with Jesus locked in a trunk. Putting Jesus in a trunk to make him manageable and safe. That Jesus that, that we create in our own image, that likes what we like and does things the way we want them to be done and thinks the way we think and is manageable. And life feels a lot more secure when you can put that Jesus in a trunk, close the lid, lock it, and we're done. As opposed to the Jesus who is the risen Christ out in the world, loose, doing whatever he wants to do in the way that he wants to do it. And Jesus says, will you trust me enough to open up the trunk? And let me be who I say I am and believe that that's best. And I know it's a struggle for us. We wrestle with doubts. But not all doubt is bad. And I don't think Jesus is frightened by our doubts. If we have honest doubts, I think Jesus can work with that. As opposed to dishonest declarations of faith. I think he would much rather have us be honest about our doubts like Thomas is. I mean, Thomas could have said, I don't really believe you, but I'll say, okay, I believe you. But he doesn't. He said, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. I don't believe you. And Jesus can work with that. And he does. And you compare that to the religious leaders. Their problem isn't doubt. Their problem is they just reject Jesus. They know that Jesus, what Jesus is saying is exactly what God has been saying through the centuries. And they've been rejecting it through the centuries. And they continue to reject it when Jesus comes. And we may, we may lament the disciples in the garden running for their lives. But they do it because they just don't know what else to do. As opposed to the religious leaders who know exactly what they're doing. And they come and they reject 
Jesus and arrest him and put him on a cross. It's not our doubts. It's our unwillingness to let Jesus be who he says he is. And actually, it, it's like Robert, Robert Winberg says in his book, Faith at the Edge. There are two kinds, two ways of doubting. One of them is a, is a reluctant, painful doubting. And the other is a belligerent, enthusiastic doubting. And the first one is doubting because we just can't quite grasp it. We want to. We desperately want to. We don't want to doubt, but we just can't quite get over the stuff that's in our way. And the other wants to doubt, chooses doubt, embraces doubt, not because they're looking for a solution, but because it makes them feel better. There's not a lot God can do with that. But this doubt that is hesitant and pained, God can work with that. Because in the end, it's not just letting Jesus be who he says he is. What he's calling us to is to want Jesus to be who he says he is. And even though we struggle to see him, even though we struggle with doubts, even though we struggle to trust, deep in our hearts, we want Jesus to be who he says he is. We want Jesus to operate in the world however he wants to operate. And we may wrestle with him about that, but deep inside, we really don't want him to want to keep him in the trunk. We want him to be free. We believe that he knows best. We just struggle to live it out. And that's okay. That's okay. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus appears in the room and identifies himself, it's not by his facial features. They don't seem to quite recognize him at first. It's not by his... His voice, they don't seem to grasp that either. It's not by doing some great miracles. He doesn't turn water into wine or rocks into bread. He identifies himself by his scars. He's not ashamed of those scars. He isn't running from them. He's not trying to hide them. Those scars represent how far he's willing to go to have a relationship with us. But those scars also tell us that the pathway to life is through death. And trusting in Jesus is coming to the place where we embrace the scars as the pathway to faith and life. The cross is not an aberration for Jesus and it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of us. Jesus says our calling is to take up our cross. It tells us how do we change the world? Not by power, not by might, not by knowing the right people, Not by vengeance. We change the world through vulnerability. 
and love and compassion and truth and caring more about others than ourselves. And quite frankly, it doesn't make sense. And often it doesn't look like it's working. But those are the very moments when we're called to trust, to believe, whether we see or not, that Jesus knows what he's doing, that he is in control, and that we want him to be for us and the world whatever he wants to be. And that brings us to this table. This table that brings us face to face with the cross, the resurrection, his ascension, the promise of his reappearing. In this table, we come face to face with who Jesus is. And wherever we may be on the continuum of faith, hear Jesus' invitation to come, to believe, and to be blessed. Father, we thank you for involving us in life with you for calling us and for, for desiring us to know the life that is possible only in you. We pray that you will help us to just continue to take steps of faith. Father, we thank you for the bread and the cup that are before us this morning. We pray that you would pour out the abundance of your blessing upon them, that they may indeed be food for our souls and grace for our lives. We ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen.